Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in our service where we just get to really focus in on your word. Father, would you help us as we learn your word and delight in your word, Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Father, we thank you for this, um, just this privilege to get to open up this book that is, um, it is your revelation of yourself um, to us, and we are just so grateful. Help us to come before it with humble hearts, Lord, eager to learn, ready to joyfully apply what we learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church family, if you will, open up in your copy of God's Word to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians in the Bible. The title of our message today is To the Saints. Um, we're going to start um, as we, last week, if you weren't able to be with us, we did an overview of the book of Ephesians, um, and then uh, and then we're going to jump in with the uh, first couple of verses today. Um, we're going to go fairly slowly through the first um, first section of Ephesians. There's a lot here in chapter 1, and we don't want to race past any of it. So uh, for a few weeks, we're going to go two to three verses at a time, and, um, and then uh, later on, we'll take a little bit um, larger uh, chunks of the book. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ This is the word of the Lord for his church today. John Stott, well-known pastor and theologian, he said this of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel for Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. What is Stott saying? I think he's saying at least two things there as he kind of gives his own summary of the book of Ephesians. First, Jesus came to save a people, not merely individuals and that people is called the church in other words the gospel is not just the message of salvation for you as an individual or for me as an individual the gospel is not just the good news that god sent jesus for you or just for me again in stott's words the gospel is not a privatized gospel it's a gospel for the church for the people of god and second I think what Sada is saying here is this, the people saved by God through Jesus look very different than the world around them. Church, the gospel is the good news that God is creating a new people for himself through Christ, a people called the church, a people made of sinners who have been transformed into saints, a people who look different than the world around them, a people who shine brightly when compared to the darkness of this world around us that has been marred by sin. Or to take Stott's words again, a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. I believe Stott is correct in his assessment of this gospel message explained by Paul to the Ephesians. And we see this even in the way that Paul opens his letters, his letter in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2 teaches us this church. By his will and through his grace, God is forming a new people in Christ Jesus. By his will and through his grace, God is forming a new people in Christ Jesus. Now, in many ways, the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians um, could be described as standard. Nothing maybe unique about it, just standard. It is very similar to the openings of his other letters. I would encourage you uh, this week, go through Paul's letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Uh, I think I skipped Philippians. Uh, Colossians, First uh, uh, and Second Timothy, First and Second Thessalonians, Titus. Uh, look through his letters and just read all the openings. There's a lot to learn there, but just compare them. See how they compare to the opening to Ephesians. What you'll find is, it's pretty standard. It's pretty standard fare. And so some might read over it as merely a formality that Paul is just checking off the box of including a greeting in his letter. Well, I got the greeting down. Now I can uh, move on to, to the body. We might be tempted to think that the real meat, the real message of the letter begins after the standard greeting. But church, I believe that the gospel of Jesus changes everything it touches, including even the greeting in a letter. In other words, this is no mere greeting. It is a gospel greeting. It is a greeting that is filled with good news. It is a greeting which is God's word. It is a greeting to which we must pay very careful attention. And before we even make it past the greeting of this letter, we are confronted with this truth that that Stott was, was trying to convey, that he said was perhaps the main point of the whole book. We are already here in verses 1 through 2 confronted with the truth that in Christ, God is creating a new people who are different and who look different from the world around them. Again, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we learn that by his will and through his grace, God has formed a new people in Christ Jesus. So today, as we look at these first two verses of Ephesians, we get to see who the human author is. We get to see who the recipients, uh, the original first recipients of this letter were. And we also are introduced to some very important terms which are essential, not just to understanding this letter, but also to understanding Christianity. To help us follow along today, let me go ahead and tell you how I've outlined the sermon um, and so you'll kind of know where we're at as we as we walk through these two verses. I'm going to give you two main truths and under the second truth, um, I'm going to give you four uh, sub points, if you will. And I just want to go ahead and tell you that just so you can kind of follow along, know where we're at. And um, and I think there's a lot that we can learn and grow from in these two verses of uh, chapter one. Let's start with the first half of verse one, Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This answers the question as to who the human author is. The apostle Paul is the human author. Now, why do I say human author? Well, it's because we know that the ultimate author of the Bible is God. And so even when we see Paul start out, Paul, an apostle, we know he's writing this letter. We also know that all scripture is breathed out by God. And so this is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what he says are the words that God wanted to convey to us. 
But it is Paul here, this apostle of Jesus. Who, who, who is Paul? Well, he's an apostle. He tells us here the word apostle refers to someone who has been sent out for a particular purpose or on a particular mission. And here it's used to refer to one of the apostles of Jesus. Now, how did you become an apostle, one of these apostles of Jesus? Well, the, the main qualification was you had to have seen the resurrected Lord. You had to have seen Jesus after he rose up from the dead. Now, Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but the risen and then ascended back to heaven, Jesus did appear to Paul when his name was Saul, when he was on the road to a city called Damascus. And he was on on the way there to persecute Christians, to round them up and to persecute them. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to Paul, uh, then was Saul um, from heaven and Saul was saved. God uh, rescued Saul from his sin, but he didn't just save uh, Saul and change his name to Paul. He called Paul out to be one of these apostles of Jesus Christ. Now you can read more about his conversion and his calling in Acts chapter 9. We even see some of his calling here in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul was called as a, as a gospel messenger specifically to the Gentiles. But notice what Paul says here. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God. Why does he say it this way? Well, one reason is to convey the authority of this letter. This letter comes with apostolic authority, but this authority does not come just from Paul and who he is or from his training or anything like that. This authority comes from none other than God. And that is what I want to draw our attention to in this first half of verse one. First truth I want to share with you is this. God sends the message of Jesus by his sovereign will. God sends the message of Jesus by his sovereign will. Now, in the coming weeks, we will see that the sovereign will of God is greatly emphasized in Ephesians chapter one and even throughout Ephesians, but especially in chapter one. All of salvation is a result of the sovereign will of God. But for now, just notice one of the things God does with his ultimate and supreme will, with his sovereign will, is that he sends the message of Jesus. God willed for Paul to be rescued from his sin and to be set apart as a special special messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why? Why? I think the simple answer is this, church, that God wanted the message of Jesus to spread. He wanted the good news of salvation to spread to sinners He wanted the the good news that Christ had come to rescue people to go forth. Because, why would God want that? Because His plan was and is to rescue people from every nation and language and tribe and people group from their sin to become worshipers forever of the one true God. The only way people can be rescued from their sins is through faith in Jesus. And before someone can believe in Jesus, he or she must hear the message of Jesus. As Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 2, 10 verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why do I emphasize this? 
Church, I emphasize this point to lead us to worship God. It is because of the sovereign will of God that Paul was set apart as an apostle. It was because of the sovereign will of God that the good news of Jesus was preached. It was because of God's sovereign will that the letter of Ephesians was even written. It was because of God's sovereign will that this message of salvation has reached you and me today. Are you thankful for the sovereign will of God? If you're saved today, it's because of God. He is behind it all. And He therefore deserves the glory and the worship for that. Are we thankful for that? An apostle by the will of God. God willed this. We have much to learn in the coming weeks about God's sovereignty and His will, but I pray that today we get just a foretaste of what is to come. A little appetizer before the feast of God's sovereign will that is laid out before us on the table um, in Ephesians, especially in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 specifically. So God sends the message of Jesus by his sovereign will. And that just that one truth ought to make us want to worship the Lord and say thank you to him. Now, we move on to the rest of verse one. And here we learn about the people to whom Paul is writing this letter. So God sends the message of Jesus by his sovereign will. And then we get these words to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Truth number two is this church. God turns sinners into saints through union with Jesus. God turns sinners into saints through union with Jesus. Notice that Paul does not address this letter to the people in Ephesus. He doesn't address this letter to the citizens of Ephesus. He addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. Well, that means we have to ask this question. Well, who are these saints? Who are these people to which he is writing to? What do you, what, I don't know. What comes to your mind when you think about a saint? Maybe some of you think about someone who plays for a professional football team in New Orleans. Maybe you think a saint is someone who has been designated as a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. Or perhaps you think that a saint is a really good person. Maybe even the mention of the word saint you kind of brought to your mind some people in your life um, who, who, who you would say, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a saint right there. That's, that person is just a saint. Well, believe it or not, all of those definitions of who these saints are is, are wrong or who saints are in general, not just these who are in Ephesus. Obviously, Paul is not writing to a football team. Obviously, he's not writing to a select group of special Christians who the Roman Catholic Church has decided to call saints since there was not even a Roman Catholic Church in existence when Paul wrote this letter. And, and, and I would say, obviously, but perhaps Maybe not so obviously for many people. Paul is not writing this letter to the really good citizens there in Ephesus. And we need to think carefully about this. Because this is where a lot of people stumble when it comes to what the good news is. And how one comes to have a relationship with God. And live, as our choir sang, in that glorious ever after. The people to whom he is writing are not saints because they are good, upstanding, moral people. That is not a biblical definition of a saint. The word saint literally means holy one or one who has been set apart unto God. And then notice the second part of this statement and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
Saints are people who have been set apart by God through faith in Christ Jesus. I think chapter 2 provides us with a really clear understanding of who saints are. If you were to skip your eyes ahead to chapter 2 for just a moment, those first, say, 8, 9, 10 verses there of chapter 2 provide a very clear picture of who saints are. Saints are people who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, but who, by God's grace, through their faith in Jesus, are now united to Christ and in possession of all the benefits that come with being united to Christ. You'll find nothing in that passage there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, or throughout Ephesians, or throughout all of Paul's letters, or throughout the entire Bible, that says anything such as saints are good people who have done good things and therefore have have gained by their own effort this qualification of saint. Nor are saints uh, saints people who, who others have deemed saints, who have looked at them and said, oh, that's a really good person. We're going to call that person a saint. Saints are only saints by the grace of God. And that is the definition not just of a saint, but of a Christian. See, here's the point. Saints are Christians. Christians are saints. Saints are not a special category of Christians. Saints are not super Christians. Saints are not people who hold a certain position or office in the church. What is true of saints is true of every believer in the church. Nine times in this letter, Paul refers to the saints, which just maybe fun fact, more than any other of his letters that he wrote. Um, nine times in this letter, he uses the word saints. And so we need to know that when Paul talks about saints, as we read and study this letter, he is talking about everyone who has been united to Jesus through faith in Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, if you are believing in Jesus for salvation, then when t- Paul talks about saints, he's talking about you. He's talking about you. Every follower of Jesus is a, is a sinner who has been transformed into a saint by the power of God. But now the flip side is also true. If you've not believed in Jesus, if you have not been united to Jesus through faith in Jesus, then you're not a saint. And no amount of effort on your part will change your status from a sinner into a saint. It doesn't mean... That you not being a saint just means you're a normal Christian and not a super Christian. It means you're not a Christian. Friend, if you are not a saint, you're not a Christian. You're dead in your sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You are under God's wrath, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. You are separated from Christ and therefore have no hope and are without God in this world, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. By the power of God, you can become a saint through faith in Jesus. And so I just wonder today if God is calling you to be transformed from a sinner into a saint through union with Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. That word Christ there that, that is, we see all throughout this letter, we see it several times here in the first two verses. That's a reference to Jesus being the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. That is, Jesus is the promised Savior and King who has come to rescue us from our sin. He came. He, he went to the cross. He suffered. He died in our place. Then He rose up from the dead in victory over sin. Over your sin, over my sin, Jesus is the reason, church, that we can become saints. And so I just want to even ask you right here, kind of in the middle of our message today, do you need to be transformed by Jesus? 
Do you need to trust in Christ? If so, trust in Him. You don't even have to wait to the end of the sermon. Right now in your heart, say, God, I need you to, to I need you to save me. I'm, I'm trusting in Christ. I need to be transformed. I can't do this on my own. Maybe I've been trying to, to earn your love, but God, I'm going to receive your free gift of salvation. Trust in him today. And church, if you have believed in him, then know that you're a saint along with every other believer in Jesus. So if that's you, don't think for a second that other Christians around you are somehow super Christians and you're somehow less of a saint than they are. Don't think that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're just as much a saint with all the all the wonders that come along and the benefits that come with being a saint as any other Christian. And at the same time, don't you dare think for a second that you are somehow greater in your sainthood than any other follower of Jesus. We who are saints are all one in our sainthood because we are all only saints as a result of union with Jesus. There's not some category of saints who are saints because they were really good and some category of saints who are only saints because they were really bad and Jesus saved them from their sin. We're all in that category. Every saint. who are sinners dead in our sin who Christ has gloriously and miraculously and, and graciously rescued from our sin. So don't think you're less of a saint Don't think you're more of a saint. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. No categories of saints. I told you I was going to give you four subpoints under truth number two, and so here they are. First is this, as saints. We want to see what, what does it mean? We've, we've looked at what, what, what it kind of this foundational definition of a saint, but what does it mean in our lives? As saints, we are set apart to God for holy living. What does this look like to be a saint in this world? It means we are set apart to God for holy living. Here we want to think a little more deeply regarding this word saints. Listen, if saints are holy ones or set apart ones, then that can't mean that it's simply a title. Or a, or a status name or a designation or just something to put on a, on a name card, right? It has to mean something more than that. Saints must be people who have been set apart. If it means to be set apart, saints must be people who have been set apart from something and to something else. This is especially true when we consider that sainthood comes by way of union with Christ. I want you to consider for a moment who Christ Jesus is. When we say we are saints through union with Christ, who are we talking about? He is the Son of God according to chapter 1 verse 3. He is the one whose blood is pure enough to purchase our redemption from sin according to chapter 1 verse 7. He is the one in whom God is uniting all things, things in heaven and things on earth in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. He is the highest display of the immeasurable greatness of God's power and the working of his great might, according to Ephesians chapter one, verse 19. He is the one who has conquered the grave and has taken the highest seat of honor in the throne room of heaven, according to chapter one, verse 20. He is the one who reigns far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, according to Ephesians chapter one. 1, verse 21 and 22. 
He is the one under whom all things have been placed and who is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And that is just some of what we learn of this Jesus Christ in just the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Church, you don't become united to this Jesus, this Holy One of Heaven, this Lord of Heaven and Earth, without it changing drastically everything about you and how you live in this sin-cursed world. In Christ, we are set apart from the darkness of this world to shine with the holiness of God. Let me put it to you as simply as I can. Saints look different than the world around them. It is in the very definition of saint. God has set us apart. Apart from what? The ways of the world. Apart to what? To God and His holiness. The city of Ephesus was a pagan city. It was famous for its temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. The temple of Artemis is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Get online, Google seven wonders of the ancient world and the temple of Artemis will pop up. You can look at pictures of the ruins and pictures of what people think it looked like in its heyday, if you will. Idol worship was a hot business in the city of Ephesus. And so when Paul writes this letter addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus, he is not merely calling them a new name, but he is reminding them of the new lives they are living and how those lives will look drastically different from the lives of their neighbors there in the city of Ephesus who are still worshiping false gods and goddesses. So Christian, let me ask us a question today. How does your life, how does my life compare to those around us who are not united to Christ? How do we look like God has set us apart unto salvation? Do we look like that? Do we look like we've been set apart from the sin of this world, from the passions of our flesh, as Paul describes them in chapter two, verse three? Or does our life, do our lives blend in well with the world around us? Do we just kind of seem to fit right in, just going right along with the flow? Or does it look like we have been set apart as saints, as holy ones unto God? Are we running in a different direction? Are you living with different values? Are you chasing after a different treasure? Are you consumed with a higher calling than those who are still darkened in their understanding, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4? Those who have yet to have the light of Christ shine upon them, as he says in chapter 5. We are saints in Christ, and as saints, we are set apart for holy living. It's not just a status. It's not just a name. It's something that changes us on a day-to-day basis. Second, as saints, we are recipients of God's undeserved favor. So as saints, we're set apart for holy living, and then as saints, we are recipients of God's undeserved favor. We're just kind of unpacking what it means to be a saint. In verse 2, Paul mentions one of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. It is the word grace. Grace. It's a word that Paul mentions no less than 12 times throughout this letter. What is grace? Grace simply means to be given a gift that you don't deserve. To be given a gift that you don't deserve. Brothers and sisters, there is a danger in all of this talk of sainthood and how we have been set apart from the world and have been placed on a higher road, if you will. 
Now, that danger is not coming from God's work. It's not that God's work is dangerous. That danger comes from our own hearts, which still struggle against the sinful flesh that that is in our nature. The danger is that we might be tempted to think that somehow our sainthood is attributable, at least in part, to something that we have done. And Christian, it's a danger for every one of us. And it's a danger that we have to stay on guard our entire lives as Christians here on this earth. We never outgrow our need to stay on guard against this danger. We might be tempted to think that we have become saints by our attempts at resisting temptation or our attempts at pleasing God. We might be tempted to think that we are saints because we attend church services or because we read our Bibles or because we give money to worthy causes or because we we have done a good deed or, or have done maybe many good deeds. But this one word, this glorious word, grace, there at the beginning of chapter 2, destroys any, anything in us that, that would lead us to arrogance that might arise in our hearts as we consider our status as saints. We are saints only by the grace of God. Remember what grace means? Getting something good, a gift, that you don't deserve. We deserve hell. But in Christ, God gives us a place with him in the heavenly places. And this new status with a new eternal destination is nothing less than an undeserved gift of God. It is God showing us undeserved favor. Hear Paul's words in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, after he describes who we are in our sin. Apart from divine intervention, he says this, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, he says, you have been saved. So considering our status as saints ought to humble us before the feet of Jesus. Listen, as we live lives, and I hope that you do, I hope you pursue it passionately, as we live lives set apart from the world, as we look different from the world around us, we do so not looking down upon others, but always looking with deep thankfulness upon Jesus, knowing that what we are, we are in Christ only by God's grace. Nothing else. End of story. Only His grace. Grace to you, Paul says. As saints, we are recipients of God's undeserved favor. Third, the third thing we learn here about saints is this. As saints, we enjoy a reconciled relationship with God. We enjoy a reconciled relationship with God. Hopefully, if you were here last week uh, or you listened back to last week's message, you think, hey, we, we talked about this a little bit last week and, and we did. And we get a little foretaste of it here in Paul's greeting. Not only does Paul say grace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but also peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week I mentioned in our overview that reconciliation is a major theme in this letter. And we see Paul really focus in on this theme of reconciliation in chapter 2, in the last half of chapter 2, and even somewhat in in chapter 3 as well. So even if you want to read ahead a little bit about reconciliation, go on to the second half of chapter 2 and and read through that. Read it over and over. It's absolutely beautiful. Can't wait till we get to that place in Paul's letter. Remember, our sin separates us from God, which means our sin destroys our peace with God. 
Go back to the Garden of Eden and the first sin. Adam and Eve went from enjoying perfect fellowship with God there in the garden to hiding from God and then being cursed by God. The harmony in their relationship was, I think we could just say it this way, shattered. The harmony in their relationship with God was shattered. Peace between God and man was destroyed. But we've seen, even all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God had a plan, and it was a plan of reconciliation. It was a plan to reestablish the peace between himself and people, himself and sinners. And that plan centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Christ come? He came to atone for our sins, to provide a covering for our sins so that we could be forgiven by God. And instead of suffering the wrath of God, which we deserve, remember the word grace, undeserved gift, we deserve the wrath of God. We could instead be united back into perfect fellowship with God. We could have peace. With God, that peace that was shattered there in the garden. That's why Christ came. In Christ, we go from being enemies of God to being children of God. In Christ, we go, uh, we, we, we actually get to now enjoy what was lost all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We can enjoy. Why don't you think about that word too? We can enjoy. Enjoy peace with God Himself. Almighty God, whom we have sinned against. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to hide from God in our sin. Maybe even as we think about sainthood and think about being set apart as holy, and you know that you trusted in Christ, you know that God has graciously and wonderfully saved you, you realize, I don't always look like a saint. Church, I don't always look like a saint. In fact, very often I don't look like a saint in my life. But we don't have to hide from God in our sins. God... Part of sainthood means we have peace with God and we get to enjoy that. Even when we find that we have sinned against God, we can run to Him in our sin and confess to Him and call Him our Heavenly Father. In Christ, our shame has been removed because Jesus took our shame upon Himself. In Christ, the curse has been lifted from our hearts because Jesus was cursed in our place. And we get to call God our Father. Notice how Paul calls God our Father here. And it's not just that God is uh, Paul's father say, well, Paul was an apostle, so he gets to call God father. No, he says, our father. Who's he talking? Who's the hour? He's talking to all the saints. He's talking to all the Christians here in Ephesus. God is the father of all the saints who are in Christ. He is our father. So let me just ask you a question. Are you enjoying your relationship with God? Does it bring you joy when you think about The peace that was shattered in the fall being restored to us. Sainthood is not a burden to bear, but it is a relationship to enjoy. We have peace with Almighty God. We get to run to Him as our Father who loves us deeply and provides for us graciously and keeps us eternally. This doesn't mean that our lives are easy or that we are no longer that we no longer face the turmoil and chaos that exists in a world still cursed by sin. But it does mean, church, that we walk through this turmoil of life knowing that we have peace with God. We walk with peace through that and we enjoy it all along the way. I love how Paul put it to the Romans in Romans chapter five. Paul said this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace With God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we, here comes the enjoyment part, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice, note this, in our sufferings. Walking through trials and yet rejoicing. 
We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And guess what? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Church, as saints, we enjoy a reconciled relationship with God. Just as a quick point of application, that ought to that ought to run a complaining attitude right out of us as we enjoy peace with God. That ought, that ought to run that grumbling right out of us as we enjoy peace with God. Fourth, I said four things about sainthood. Fourth, as saints, we submit to Jesus as Lord. As saints, we submit to to Jesus as Lord. It's so easy to read quickly over certain words and phrases in God's word without giving them a second thought. We become familiar with the words and phrases in scripture, which is a good thing. We, we want to be as familiar as we can with them. But our familiarity with the words of scripture should never cause us to fail to consider them and meditate upon them and, and ask, how does this apply to my life? Paul here calls Jesus not only the Christ, which we've said means the the Savior, the Savior King, this promised one who's coming to save. But he calls Jesus Lord. He calls Jesus Lord. Paul leaves no doubt right from the outset of this letter as to who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. And Paul knew firsthand the gravity, the weight of of that statement, of that claim that Jesus is Lord. He was writing this letter from prison. And why was he in prison? It was because he believed and lived out and was not afraid to say that Jesus is Lord. Paul was in prison because his submission to earthly authority ended when the earthly authority conflicted with the authority of Jesus. The Jewish leaders had told him to stop preaching about Jesus. Well, that's a conflict between earthly authority and heavenly authority. And Paul sided with heavenly authority because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so Paul kept preaching the gospel. Why? Because he just really liked it. Well, I'm sure he loved it. It was the same message that saved him. But ultimately, he kept preaching the gospel because Jesus was Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so he submitted himself to the lordship of Christ. And that led to his imprisonment, ultimately, from Jerusalem there into into Rome. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. And in chapter 6, verse 20, Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains. Paul knew full well what it meant to be a saint. It meant that Jesus was his Lord. Lord wasn't simply a name to call Jesus, just to tag on to the end or the beginning of Jesus' name. Jesus Christ the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. It was just words that were flying out of his mouth. It was a declaration of submission to Jesus. Listen, Jesus calls the shots. For the lives of the saints. Jesus makes the rules. Jesus gives the orders. Jesus is Lord. He's not merely our ticket into heaven. He is ruler of our lives. And as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he knows the implications of calling Jesus Lord in their city and in that region. 
On Paul's third missionary journey, he has spent over two years there in the city of Ephesus preaching the gospel. You can read about his time there in Acts chapter 19. I would encourage you to do that this week. Acts 19. Now, many in Ephesus believed that Jesus was the Christ and they turned from worshiping. Remember the temple of the goddess Artemis, one of the seven ancients of the wonders of the ancient world. They turned from worshiping that false goddess to worshiping Jesus as Lord. But when they did, guess what happened? They faced opposition. In fact, Acts chapter 19 describes a riot that started in the city because a man named Demetrius had a business selling shrines of the goddess Artemis. And when people started worshiping Jesus, guess what happened to his prophets? They plummeted. People weren't buying the shrines of of Artemis because they, they had a new God. They were worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that made him mad. He stirred up the people in the city to oppose Paul and the Christians there. But apparently the Christians kept submitting to Jesus as Lord, even in the face of opposition, because several years later, there are saints by God's grace in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, to whom Paul is writing this letter from prison. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is Lord. God is working out his plan for the fullness of time to bring all things into submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ. One day there will be many who will be forced into submission. To Jesus Christ, and they will suffer God's wrath for having lived in rebellion against God. But those who are saints Those who are saints, those who have been transformed by the glorious gospel of grace, those who have been set apart by God for his glory, who therefore submit to Jesus as Lord, will rejoice. We won't have to be forced into submission because we are already submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace. We will rejoice when Christ comes in his glory. Because then we will see face to face the king who died for us and before whom we have lived our lives in glad hearted submission. How glorious church it is to be a saint of God. So let me ask you this. Are you a saint today? This letter is to the saints. Are you a saint today? Let me remind you once more, it is only in Christ that a sinner becomes a saint And so let me phrase it this way. Are you in Christ today? Are you in Christ? I didn't ask you, are you trying really hard to earn God's love? I ask, are you in Christ? That means, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you gone to God and said, God, all I have to offer you is my sin. So God, I want you to save me by your grace. I want you to show me undeserved favor to give me a gift that I don't deserve. God, I believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ who died for my sins, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, who is the Lord of my life. And I want to submit my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a saint today? And if you are a saint. Does it show? Does it show? Does it show? Does it show when you're holy living, brothers and sisters in Christ? Does it show in your spirit of humble thankfulness to God for his grace? Does it show in your calmness in the midst of the storms of life as you enjoy peace with God? Does it show in your submission to Jesus as Lord of your life? To use Stott's words that we started with today, do we look, church, 
like a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. Church, by His will and through His grace, God is forming a new people in Christ Jesus. And so, church, for the glory of God, let us look like the people God has made us to be. Saints, faithful in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for a new status, but not just the status. Thank You for a new life. The life of a saint. The life of someone who has been wondrously and gloriously and graciously transformed by union with Jesus Christ. God, may we embrace what it means to be a saint. May we enjoy it. May we we rejoice in it. And God, may it humble us before the feet of Jesus. God, would you help us to live as saints in this world? Humbly pursuing holiness. For the glory of King Jesus, our Savior. Father, if there's someone here today who is not a saint, but knows that that they need to be. Father, I pray that they would respond to the call of the gospel. By turning from their sin and turning to Jesus. In humble faith. Father, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.